For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, visit the new production at the Rogue Theater. Hear an essay by Adiba Nelson. Beth Surtit tells us about an unusual owl she named Ho-Hum and a profile of an Arizonan who fought in the Vietnam War. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The Rogue Theater in Tucson has begun its 13th season with the world premiere of a play by a local author that has already earned recognition for its provocative subject matter. Next, we go backstage with the cast and crew of Celia, a Slave. We have this little ritual at the beginning of all of our rehearsals. We throw a ball around in a circle. One of the things that's really cool about that exercise is it's just fun. All right, hold your ball. I beg your pardon. I always tell the, the ensemble that fun is a professional responsibility. My name is Joe McGrath. I'm one of the founders and the artistic director of the Rogue Theater. My name is Cindy Meyer, and I'm the director of this production and one of the co-founders of the Rogue. Joe McGrath and I started the Rogue in 2005. We decided that life was short, so if we want to do the plays that we would like to see, then we should um, we should just do it. Then put sweet taters in the pan, carve them to the heart. We wanted an ensemble-based repertory theater, and that's what we created. I'm not gonna uh, lie to you, I was shocked at first. I was like, the rope is putting on this play. I'm Sterling Boynes, I'm playing George, uh, Celia's lover and an enslaved male. Slave rape ain't a crime. Throughout the rehearsal process, I at first was really reluctant to get into the character and just into this world because I knew how disturbing it was going to be. As an artist, I believe it's important to reflect the times in which we live in. Um, I've never done a slave narrative before. I've always been scared, still am right now. I wouldn't be doing it if I wasn't scared. Celia the Slave is a play that came to us a couple of years ago, actually. The play is based on an 1855 trial of a young black woman who was uh, sentenced to death because she had killed her master after being repeatedly raped for five years. Barbara Seda is a friend who we knew wrote this play and she shared it with us, I, I think even before it won the Yale Drama Prize. Mean enough to hunt bear with a switch. My name is Barbara Seda, I'm uh, the playwright. Even though the play won the Yale Drama Prize, it sat on the table at every major theater in the U.S. for about two years. All those deals kept coming together and falling apart. Finally, Joe and Cindy invited me into their office and asked if we could do the play here, and I was thrilled. There are all kinds of reasons that I disqualified myself from writing the play, and then finally, I just decided to write it. I worked as a journalist for many years, foregrounding the voices of those silenced by the mainstream. We have an amazing 
a gifted cast that is multiracial and intergenerational. The youngest is 10, the oldest is 70. I fell in love with it reading the first monologue, which is Jingo, a hog farmer, talking, just talking about raising hogs. Raising from birth to butcher, bacon, ham, pork chops, smoked butt. And talking about it in what are surprising, funny, crude, lively terms. Pop them across the snout. I'm Vaughn Suit, S-U-I-T-T. I started in third grade in a show called Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> I was the, the lead role of Beast. <laughs> I'm playing the role of Celia. Uh, and she's a very complex character. I think I didn't really realize the weight of the character until, honestly, like, I think the first rehearsal. When I first read through it, I was like, man, this is sad. But when I actually had to feel the emotions that she felt, it, it took a toll on me, not negatively, but it definitely, it changed me and it changed my perspective. Going back and counting the minutes and seconds of their future. My name is Andrew Wilson. I play Matt, ten-year-old slave on death row, Celia's cellmate in the place Celia. I was bullyragged, tortured, accused of killing baby Virgil. My character is really serious. I have to really act the part. While Max had a rope around my neck, made it real tight. We talk about it sometimes, and sometimes it just get like a like a dash of anger. Like we like, why did this happen to like my grandparents or like great grandparents and stuff like that? I just like really get mad at that and how they treated people like that. The salient facts of this story are, are, are all recorded in the, in the trial transcripts. These people actually existed. Free and enslaved blacks are classified as persons with no constitutional protection. White slaveholders do as they please. There's no fear of penalty. Because it takes place in 1855, it's five years before the Civil War, so you can, you can hear the rumblings of the Civil War um, coming through the characters and through the play. Slavery is necessary and barbarous. They know there's a reckoning uh, uh, coming and they're desperately trying to uh, fight against it. We're just really thrilled to be able to present it to Tucson because it's, it's an important work and it's an important conversation for us to have that corrupting institution that this country indulged in for, for several hundred years has, has still not stopped corrupting us. I've come to understand our problem uh, better by working on this play. I'm quoting our director, Cindy Myers, who's one of the co-founders of The Rogue. She said, this is probably our most important play that we've put on yet. Andrew Brown produced our backstage visit to the Rogue Theater. You can see the television version at azpm.org. Performances of Celia, a Slave, run through September 24th. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. In this essay, she tells us about the journey to understanding her identity in the world of relationships. I remember being six years old and telling my mom in a very random, unsolicited fashion that when I grew up, I was going to marry a white man named Kevin. He was going to have blonde hair and blue eyes. We would have two children, Bobby and Rebecca. 
a golden retriever and live in a big house with a big front yard and a white picket fence. I remember that my mom just looked at me quizzically, let out one of the most nonchalant OKs in Mom Can't Be Bothered history, and went back to making dinner. I was six, but I had already decided that boys that turned into men that looked like me were not going to be my destiny. How does a whisper of a girl come to that conclusion? And more than that, does she hold true to this position for her entire life? Or does the innate need for the comfort of a face that looks like hers, hair that kinks like hers, and a heart that breaks like hers, win out in the end? Well, my husband is white, but his name is not Kevin. And I didn't get to him without seeking out a familiar heartbeat first. This is my story. At the age of six, I firmly decided that a brother was not in the cards for this system. My social and dating knowledge base should not have extended past, what would happen if Barbie found out that Ken was cheating on her with Skipper? However, when you carry childhood post-traumatic stress disorder due to witnessing violence between your black father and black stepfather and your Puerto Rican mother, your six-year-old brain says that all black men are like these black men and therefore they are not for you. It becomes hardwired into your brain. Because of this, I grew up with a disdainful eye for the face that looked like mine. If I were to tell the truth, I actually didn't think it looked like me at all. I was not violent. I did not yell. I was not angry. To make sure that these attributes never took hold of me or got near me, I sought out, latched onto, and pledged my undying and unrequited love and affection to what I believed was the polar opposite, the white guy. And that's okay, because the brothers weren't checking for me anyway. I was awkward, and like new kids on the block, they told me I talked white, and I was a goody-goody. So no harm, no foul. I didn't see myself in them, and they didn't see themselves in me. Until my white boyfriends, white friends, saw me, but didn't see me, and called me a jungle bunny. My white boyfriend told me to just ignore them. I assumed that he would have my back, understanding the weight of what had just taken place. However, we all know what happens when we assume. At that moment, I felt like the betrayal I had served to the black men who made sure I knew I was wrong for crossing over was slapping me in the face as payback. I desperately needed to see a face that looked like mine, who would know that pain, could taste my tears, but there was no one. And so I began to seek out the brothers with reckless abandon. And I do mean reckless abandon. I joined blackplanet.com. I started going to the black clubs and I tried to hang out with the black fraternities. You know, basically all the things we make fun of white girls for doing. And you know what happened? That PTSD managed to cat claw its way back into my psyche and I found myself helplessly drawn to the one white guy of Phi Beta Sigma. A whole slew of brothers, and I found myself in that same tired and timeless position. I don't know you. I don't trust you. I am not like you, and because of this, I don't see you. And because I don't see you, I'll never allow you to see me. 
That doesn't mean I didn't try like hell to really see the black man, though. I dated a few black men, and my first husband was black, and without going into great detail, in many respects, I became my mother. The one thing I silently rallied against at the tender age of six is the one thing I became. My solution? Yep, you guessed it. I don't see you, you don't see me. It is not something I am necessarily proud of. I don't wear it like a badge of honor or write it on a name tag at events. Hi, my name is Adiba and I don't date black men. No, rather, it is something that I carry around hidden in my knapsack of crappy life events that I am slowly and apparently publicly starting to unpack. This knapsack is heavy, but then again, so is childhood trauma and everything that comes with it. Now, if you remember, I started this piece by telling you that I did, in fact, marry a white guy. It's true, I did. However, that doesn't mean that life is all peaches and herb. He was married for 22 years to a white woman who is my polar opposite and was raising two white males. I had only lived with one other white man in my life and my now husband and his two sons had never lived with an Afro-Latin woman. They are Jewish, I am not. Aside from the cultural differences, I hadn't felt the obvious difference between myself and my husband until we saw the grotesque rise in murders of black men and women at the hands of police last year. My husband, try as he did, could not fully grasp the hopelessness, the fear, the rage, and the despair that I felt every time the news reported another black man had been killed. He empathized, and he held me as I sobbed, but even he admitted that it was different for him because he would never be touched by these deaths in the same way I was, simply because he and his sons are white. That deeper understanding, that unspoken, knowing glance, grease my scalp and I'll grease yours, kinfolk connection is what I forsook in my decision to date and marry outside of my race. I don't regret it, and I can't say I miss it since I never had it, but I also can't say that I've never wanted it. In speaking my truth without disrespecting my husband, when the news is especially brutal, I long to reach over and hold a brown hand and my brown hand and cry silently without having to explain why my heart is broken and in pieces over the state of affairs for my people. However, my knapsack is deep and it's heavy and my husband is white. You can find much more of Adiba Nelson online. The Beats were by DJ Benby. Author and wildlife illustrator Beth Surtit listens to ravens and has paddled with alligators in wild and scenic places. Next, she introduces us to a local owl whose odd behavior sent her hunting for answers. From the moment I spotted the two great horned owl chicks, their big-eyed, fuzzy heads rising above their bulky nest, the larger one would watch me. If I bobbled my head... That chick would mimic my motion. If I changed the direction, so would the bird. I named her Bobble. Ho-hum, the smaller one, 
would always be looking off somewhere, not seeming focused on anything in particular. I'd witnessed the courtship of Bobble and Hoham's parents. I named them Tristan and Isolt. From the top of his plumicorns, what appear to be horns but are feathers, to the points of his piercingly sharp talons, Tristan is a model of his species. Except, according to statistics, he should actually be a she, because the female great horned owl is usually larger than her mate. The male has a larger voice box and a deeper voice. Tristan not only has a deeper voice, but when the time came, he was not the one sitting on the nest. Funny how animals don't read the manuals. There are three main trees in this story. Sleeping tree, nesting tree, and hunting tree. The owls sometimes shift between them, like a game of musical chairs. Once mated for life, Tristan and Isolt moved into an old hawk's nest. Tristan brought food to Isolt during the months she sat on the eggs. After the babies were born, he continued to supply rodents, rabbits, birds, and anything else he could catch. As the chicks grew into fledglings, Isolt began to leave them to go hunting. Tristan would sleep each day in the pine tree where the courtship began. One day, I arrived to find that the nest was empty. I headed for Tristan's usual roost, but he was gone. At first, the tree seemed empty, so I looked for clues on the ground. A dove's egg, unblemished, lay where it had fallen on a bed of pine needles. Then I saw some fresh white owl splashes. They almost glow in the dark. I started scanning the branches and spotted a fledgling. I moved a bit. So did the owl's head as it followed me. I rotated my head, then nodded up and down. So did the owlet. I'd found Bobble. Bobble seemed young to be alone, so with more scanning, I found Ho-Hum, about eight feet away from his sibling, gazing off into wherever, but as usual, didn't look at me. I kept looking, and farther up at a distance, but within sight of her offspring, I recognize Isolt. She is the smallest parent I've seen so far. Each evening, Isolt would fly out and land in the hunting tree within sight of the sleeping tree. Bobble would soon follow. Eventually, Ho-Hum would too, sometimes first making a soft alarm like a chicken squawk. Daily, I found headless corpses, sometimes two at a time, under the hunting tree, a rabbit on its side. Oh, those soft little feet a dove with twisted wings, a pack rat sprawled on its belly. Owls usually eat every part and let their system separate out the indigestible bones, beaks, fur, and feathers. I admire that efficiency. If the death of one creature feeds another, so be it. Finding the corpses made me cranky, that sloppiness, that waste of life. With each cycle I've watched, there is a time when the owls leave the familiar trees. I continue to visit the same places, feeling bereft at the absence. 
But eventually the cycle starts again and I find a solo owl. This time I heard a soft babyish alarm cry, steady, repeating in the sleeping tree. I looked up, 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 and there was Ho-Hum. He sounded like a tired baby bird begging for food. The first time I found him alone, he continued to call as he flew to the hunting tree, where he rocked to and fro like an unsteady tightrope walker. Then he lofted over to a more distant tree, where he rocked again. He flew back to the hunting tree and then returned to the sleeping tree. His cries grew softer, whimpering sounds, as night dropped its curtain on what I could see. I walked home, confused, having never heard this repetition of cries, nor witnessed this circling back at nightfall. I visited Ho-Hum almost every early evening, before he flew out to hunt. This owl, that had ignored me when his family was around, now cried softly as soon as he spotted me. Unlike his younger days, he would watch me as I moved around under the tree where the monsoons exposed and scattered the contents of older pellets. This miniature boneyard steamed with the earthy sense of rot that are usually masked by the aridness of the desert. Many of the pellets held only skulls. Amidst the damp and layered dead animal parts and plant matter, I found most of a freshly killed pack rat on its belly, back legs pointing in opposite directions, head and shoulders gone. The corpse was misplaced because owls usually eat after returning to the hunting tree with prey. When I left, I could hear Ho-Hum's voice all the way to my house. I called my friend Amanda Remsberg, a certified bird rehabilitator in Houston. I was curious about the headless corpses. So he's practicing, he's learning how to hunt, and so he's going to take all the opportunities that he can to practice. He might have brought it back to his sleeping tree, thinking, well, maybe I'll want this later. I walked out to check on Ho-Hum, but couldn't find any owls. Then I heard two voices, one higher than the other, hooting at dusk. At first, the calls came from the eucalyptus trees across the street from my house. A few days ago, I heard hooting in the area of the hunting tree. It was almost dark when I went on my own hunting expedition looking for signs under trees. There they were, fresh, bright white splashes, two pellets, and a bird skull partially coated with chewed up feathers, just a skull. The hooting started, and then a second voice. The foliage was so dense, I couldn't see the owls until one, and then the other flew to the next tree. They were both small compared to Tristan. It looks like Ho-Hum found the companion he needs. I bet he never talks to me again, and that's the way it should be. There are pictures of Ho-Hum and his family taken by wildlife photographer Doris Evans on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. 
You can also find many more stories about encounters with Arizona wildlife as told by Beth Serdit. This Sunday evening on PBS 6, the new Arizona public media documentary miniseries, Arizona and the Vietnam War, begins, followed by the new epic 10-part, 18-hour film series, The Vietnam War, from directors Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. In anticipation, Arizona Spotlight is sharing profiles of Arizonans who served during the Vietnam War. Frederico Tapia was born in Agua Prieta, Mexico, and came to Arizona when he was 15. Though he couldn't speak English and never attended school here, he was drafted into the Army in 1969. Soon he found himself ferried by helicopter into combat deep in the Vietnamese jungle. Like every month, we went to the base, to the camp, and uh, we used to have a good time and we got drunk and everything. And what happened, uh, they called us out to go to the field like uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. And to be honest, I was halfway drunk when they pulled us out, you know, to the bay, to, to, to the field. And uh, I told a friend of mine, to one of the soldiers, they said, hey, I'm just going to lay behind that bush right there, uh, wake me up if we move out. I think I woke up about 7.30 or 8 in the morning, and I was all by myself and up in the, on top of the hill. And when I didn't see anybody, you know, I kind of, uh, what's going on, you know? I just started, uh, I don't know what I'm gonna do, you know? So the first thing that came to my mind, and uh, I can swear right now, that uh, they're not gonna catch me alive. I'm gonna kill myself right now. I grabbed my M16, put it in my mouth. When I was gonna pull the trigger, I heard uh, like a baby cry. And I said, wait a minute, you know, like, what am I doing? I can survive. I was taught how to survive. And uh, I just kind of, uh, when I heard the baby, where's a baby in the jungle? Only God knows what's going on. You know what? I don't know. So I just said, thank you you know, for not doing it, or not letting me do it. Like I said, where can you, where can you hear a baby cry in the jungle? I said, God wants me alive. That's what happened, I guess. But it was very scary that particular day. Arizona and the Vietnam War is produced by Tom Clesby with assistance from Robert Lindbergh. The documentary miniseries debuts this Sunday, September 17th at 7 p.m., followed by the premiere of Ken Burns' The Vietnam War at 8 p.m. on PBS 6. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.